Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today, political scientists Sarah Mitchell, uh, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hello. Welcome back, Sarah. Hello. We'll say hello to Dave Peterson, uh, the Lucan Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. Hi, Dave. Hey, Ben. Hey, Sarah. Hey. We have a a big lineup today and something just um, within the last few minutes added to that lineup. Later in the program, the threat of a government shutdown, averting that. We'll talk about uh, what's going on there with Congress. Also, a reaction to that Alabama court ruling uh, and the implications for in vitro fertilization. Uh, uh, Former President Trump's legal problems and the cash crunch he faces right now. Also, I want to ask our two guests uh, what they're watching in particular in our Iowa legislature legislative uh, session. Uh, And then toward the end of the hour, uh, foreign policy, uh, the Ukraine war anniversary, also the news that Hungary approved uh, Sweden for NATO uh, membership. And uh, we'll talk about Gaza because that, of course, is tied up in uh, the vote yesterday in Michigan. Um, And we'll talk about that in a moment. But within the last hour, Mitch McConnell, the longest serving Senate history leader in history, he maintained his power in the face of these dramatic convulsions in the Republican Party for almost two decades, announced he will step down in November. Here's some of that announcement. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job my colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. I'll finish the job the people of Kentucky hired me to do as well, albeit from a different seat. And I'm actually looking forward to that. Okay, uh, your thoughts. Uh, Dave, let's start with you on McConnell's legacy, what he'll most be remembered for. Oh, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think Mitch McConnell will be most remembered for his uh, shepherding through the Republican agenda uh, in his time as Senate Majority Leader. Um, He was uh, an incredibly effective leader at uh, coordinating efforts across the the Republican uh, caucus there in the Senate. Um, you know, I think the single thing that'll stand out potentially most is the uh, blocking of uh, President Obama's uh, nomination of Merrick Garland, allowing President Trump to to fill that seat. I mean, that's the that might be the the thing that stands out most to most people. But he was also, um, you know, played a key role in shutting down campaign finance reform and challenge, being the, one of the lead people challenging uh, McCain-Feingold uh, the, that um, efforts to to regulate money in politics. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a whole host of other things, but those are the those are the ones that stand out yeah. most to me. In the announcement, uh, aides to McConnell said uh, that the, the giving up the leadership post was unrelated to his health. Of course, we remember this uh, Kentucky senator had a concussion from a fall last year, and then we had these two public episodes where his face um, briefly froze uh, while he was speaking. Sarah, your thoughts on, on McConnell's long history as a Senate leader? 
Yeah, I mean, he's certainly one of the most recognizable figures in the Republican Party. I mean, I think he has, you know, uh, at some times taken heat for being critical of, of Trump in some points in time and then, um, you know, moving back that position uh, to, to be more in line with Trump. Um, so I think it'll it'll be interesting to see uh, who the Senate elects as their next leader, um, much like w- with Nancy Pelosi, right, being a very effective leader, it's it can sometimes be hard to step into those shoes uh, when somebody's had the job for a long time and been effective. Right, and and McConnell has um, has uh, been in power during this ideological transition uh, underway in the Republican Party from what we could call Ronald Reagan's brand of traditional conservatism. Uh, with strong international alliances, Sarah, to uh, what we have now is some isolationist uh, populism, former President Trump there. I wonder, what, what are your thoughts when we look about the, the future leader of the Republicans in the Senate, which which camp <laughs> will be represented at the top? Well, I think we're seeing this play out, you know, a lot of the, the recent uh, primaries in Nevada and Michigan, right? They, they've been playing out in sort of caucus versus primary on the Republican side. And that's because there are factions within the party that are not in agreement with each other. And and so I suspect that in this, I don't know, the Senate is more moderate on average, uh, but I would say we're still going to see those factions of the party, you know, trying to secure that leadership position. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Michigan primaries that happened yesterday. Donald Trump, uh, Joe Biden easily winning their respective primaries in the state of Michigan. Uh, Trump defeating former U.N. ambassador uh, in his administration, uh, Nikki Haley, I think for the sixth time. Biden uh, faced a notable challenge from more than 100,000 voters who selected uncommitted on their ballots to protest his handling uh, of the war in Gaza. Uh, let's listen to a bit of audio here. Michigan U.S. Representative and Palestinian-American Rashida Talib uh, speaking to voters in Michigan on Sunday. President Biden is risking another Trump term over his support for the most right-wing government, most extremist government in the, in the history of Israel. There is nothing humanitarian about temporary pause in this death and destruction. We would need a permanent ceasefire. Nothing else is not is enough. U.S. Representative Rashida Talib, um, Dave, you, uh, f- let's focus on this protest vote. That seems to be a, um, a key part of um, the analysis here. What does that uncommitted vote mean? Uh, potential trouble for Biden? It 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 recognizes, or I think it it, it means that there is a real divide in the party. Um, over the appropriate approach to take towards Israel. Um, you know, that Biden's in a tough spot for this, right? The the, the party um, on both sides, right? There is a chunk of the party that sees this in absolutist terms that is unwilling to, to, to compromise on this. And that's a really difficult thing for a party leader to manage. How do you, how do you maintain your coalition? Um, how do you keep, folks happy. And so I think the, the idea of, um, the, the parts of the party that are a little bit more, that are a lot more pro-Palestinian, um, don't have as strong a voice. And so using the uncommitted vote in Michigan as a signal, as a protest, um, is, is an attempt to 
put more pressure on Biden to change his approach towards Israel um, with the hopes of changing Netanyahu's policy. Yeah. And, and then, Dave, I guess, you know, you use the word signal. Is it more than a signal? I, I guess if you're a campaign strategist, aren't you wondering, is this a protest vote or is this, um, you know, uh, has Biden in their eyes done something in his policy toward Gaza that uh, that uh, prevents their vote from being won back, right? Yeah, that's that's the ultimate question. I mean, uh, um, and, and I don't know the answer to that, right? At some point, I mean, to be uh, a little just blunt about it, right? It's sort of easy to say right now, um, it's costless. It's sort of cheap talk to say, right, there's no way I'll vote for Biden unless he changes things because mm-hmm. you don't really, you know, I, I won't vote for Biden in the general election unless he changes things because you're not actually making that choice, right? You've got nine, eight months now, I guess, to before mm-hmm. that that really matters. And and in, in late October, early November, Will folks see it differently? I don't know the answer to that question, um, and I don't think anyone does. And so, yeah. you know, he he has to try to figure that out. He has to try to figure out how he can um, reach out to this part of the party, to these uh, potential supporters, and uh, convince them to to, to give him uh, their support. Sarah, your um, view on this uh, protest vote uh, uncommitted on their ballots in Michigan. Well, first of all, we should point out that Trump only got 68% of the vote. And this is a, you know, he's essentially an incumbent as well, right? And so the numbers that he's bringing in in places like Iowa, South Carolina, and Michigan, you know, this is not what an incumbent looks like, right, <laughs> in terms of advantage. So uh, I think, you know, Biden at 81% is is getting more discussion than Trump at 68% in, in some of these mm-hmm. media outlets. Number two... The 13.3% uncommitted uh, for Biden, um, if you compare that to uh, Barack Obama in 2012, it was 10.69% of votes uncommitted in Michigan. Um, So that's also when Obama was uh, running for re-election. So, you know, this sort of, again, this looks like a really high number, but relative to at least some past elections, uh, it's not that much higher. Um, and then I would say on the, the issue, you know, yeah, it, I agree with Dave that it's it's easy to say now that, you know, you take a firm stance and not vote for President Biden, uh, depending on how the U.S. proceeds on this issue. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the U.S. and Israel have a very, you know, decades long, very strong relationship. A lot of political scientists have written about what they call the Israeli lobby. So essentially, you know, there have been a lot of interest groups uh, in the U.S. that have promoted uh, strong ties between the U.S. and Israel. And I think President Biden is from a generation where that that was the default position for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we've certainly seen a shift, right, in the party and, and among some members of the U.S. foreign policy establishment uh, because of, uh, you know, Israel's occupation of territories in the time since the Six-Day War. Um, and, and but but on the other hand, you've got a candidate, uh, President Trump, who's going to, you know, talking about reimposing the Muslim ban, enacting much uh, more stringent uh, rules about who can enter the United States. Um, and so you know, the policies on the other side are not going to be favorable and are probably going to be worse for uh, American uh, Arabs. 
Sarah Mitchell is with us, as well as Dave Peterson, our two political scientists on board this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. You can join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. We'll finish up talking about the Michigan primaries uh, yesterday, and then move on to uh, averting a government shutdown once again. When we return, I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, Fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Right now, as you've been hearing, we're in the quiet portion of our spring membership drive, not interrupting our usual program schedule, but we do want to remind you that 86% of our support comes from our community. You can learn more at IPR. Dot org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of our program. Uh, joining us, um, we have the expertise of Sarah Mitchell and Dave Peterson, two political scientists, uh, Dave from Iowa State University, Sarah from the University of Iowa. You can join our conversation as we move through about a half dozen uh, topics uh, at the top of our um, political <laughs> menu, so to speak. Uh, we never know quite how many we'll get to in a given hour. Let's finish up talking about the primaries uh, that occurred yesterday in Michigan. Um, Biden leading uncommitted, uh, that protest vote, 81% to 13%. Uh, Former President Trump um, leading former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley, 68% to 26%. Let's focus on that. Uh, Dave, is Nikki Haley, do you think, beginning to acknowledge the end game here? If so, what are her goals uh, staying in this race. Um, I understand she said she will stay in the race through Super Tuesday next week. Um, yeah, I mean, that, I think it's a good question about what her goals are. Um, you know, I think there's there's sort of two main ones, right? One is, you know, hope that uh, Trump's legal problems catch up to him such that um, the party turns, right, and and decides he, he shouldn't be the nominee, in which case she's the sort of last person standing. Um or potentially, you know, setting herself up for a post-Trump Republican Party, right? So if Donald Trump, uh, you know, is the nominee but loses in the fall, the party's likely to do a lot of soul searching and sort of trying to figure out where to go next. And if she is the person saying, "I told you," right? I was the one yeah. who fought the hardest, right? She has that potential to sort of lead the 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 post-Trump Republican Party. Yeah, you see it the same way, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw this morning, right? She's she's losing financial support going forward. Um, from, I think it's the Koch brothers, right, that are funding yes, her. Yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so at least for the short term, I think she's. It, yeah, it's going to be difficult to have uh, a really long term campaign, given that she she might lose some of those big donors. But on the other hand, I agree with Dave that the the long term game here is to show, you know, how much of a, a credible uh, candidate she is and that she's good on, you know, she's been really good on the campaign trail. I think she did well in debates. So I think this sets her up well for future runs. 
Next week, a big week, 18 states and territories holding primaries or caucuses on Super Tuesday. Sarah, your expectations there, um, what will we find out in those contests that we don't already know? Uh, not a whole lot, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> more of the same. <laughs> so, no, I, I think Trump and Biden will continue to get most of the vote. Um, yeah. Haley will get some smaller amount of the vote, uh, but, but I, I don't really see any kind of shakeup moving forward in the near future. Uh, yeah. Dave, your thoughts on Super Tuesday? Um, no, I, I agree with Sarah. And I do want to echo what she said before the break about the, the, the race here, right? That, um, yeah, I mean, Trump's going to be the nominee. He's in no, there's there's no reasonable scenario that doesn't involve, you know, him serving prison time where he won't be the the nominee. But I think Sarah was absolutely right that given the position he's in, there's a chunk of the party that really doesn't want him. Um, and if we compare him to, you know, we, we haven't had a lot of incumbent presidents run, but if we compare him to George H.W. Bush, if we compare him to Jimmy Carter, right, we remember their challenges as real signs of weakness. And I think it's important to sort of start asking ourselves a little bit or continue asking ourselves a little bit of, you know, is this a sign of general election weakness for, for Donald Trump the same way it was for those past those past presidents? Mm-hmm. Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Ben Kiefer with Dave Peterson and Sarah Mitchell. one 780 River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, let's move on to, uh, well, averting another government shutdown in uh, three days' time, I think. Uh, <laughs> the clock is ticking. Uh, partial shutdown beginning at 12.01 a.m. on Saturday. If lawmakers don't pass new funding legislation, uh, this uh, first uh, shut partial shutdown would impact key services, thousands of federal workers. Yesterday, congressional leaders sounding optimistic about a deal. Lawmakers, though, struggling to agree on sending more aid to fund Ukraine's war with Russia. Uh, I think in the latest news I saw this morning, Speaker Johnson floating another short-term stopgap spending bill to head off a this government, uh, partial government shutdown at the end of the week. Let's listen to a couple of voices. Um, uh, lawmakers speaking to reporters on Capitol Hill after budget discussions uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, here is what uh, the uh, uh, ma- uh, majority leader of the Senate, um, Chuck Schumer, had to say. The meeting on um, Ukraine was one of the most intense I have ever encountered in my many meetings in the Oval Office. The overwhelming sentiment in that meeting is we got to do Ukraine now. And there are other issues, including border, which we should address, but not now. We want to fix border. But it was also clear the speaker did not make, didn't give a reason why you had to do one before you did the other. Okay, House Speaker Mike Johnson in on that Oval Office discussion with President Biden. He also spoke with reporters yesterday and explained why he would like to prioritize border security. Uh, Let me say this. When I showed up today, my purpose was to express what I believe is the obvious truth, and that is that we must take care of America's needs first. When you talk about America's needs, you have to talk first about our open border. I've been, I believe, in uh, maybe 20-something states over the last several weeks, going around the country, uh, appearing at events with my colleagues, and we're hearing from the American people of all parties and all persuasions in all cities and all states who feel this acutely, they understand the catastrophe at the border is affecting everyone. 
Okay, Dave and Sarah, what's going on here? According to reports, I'm sure you've read them, that an intense meeting between those leaders with the president yesterday in the Oval Office, Speaker Johnson, we just heard there. Evidently, according to these reports, the odd man out, Biden making it clear that the speaker's positions were out of step with other leaders in the government, uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, in that meeting, even uh, Senator Mitch McConnell emphasizing the need for the Speaker of the House to avoid a government shutdown. Uh, Dave, uh, tackle this. Explain uh, what you see as the position that Speaker uh, Johnson finds himself in. I mean, it's a completely untenable position. He has a a chunk of his party that uh, doesn't want a deal, um, and his majority is so slim that that chunk is big enough to to challenge his uh, position as Speaker, right? This is what happened uh, uh, with... um, Previous speaker, whose name I'm blanking on, uh, uh, right? And and he knows full well that at any moment, if he uh, angers the 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 particularly uh, conservative wing of the wing of the party, the the house will break again. Um, and so and and, and he, out him, exit him yeah. like Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy, thank you. I oh, completely <laughs> blanked on that. I could picture Happens him. Happens to all Thursday. of us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but right, yeah. I mean, so it's he's in a position. You know, Biden's negotiating as a unitary actor, as one person who doesn't have to worry about a coalition, right? That he has to be able to put together to get the votes. The Senate, as Sarah noted earlier, right, is more moderate and more reasonable, and and uh, uh, Schumer and McConnell can work together to get something passed in the Senate. And Johnson's just in a spot where he can't rely on the Democrats, because if he does, he'll lose his speakership, right? And so yeah. he has to try to herd the, his party that is completely disorganized and dysfunctional. Yeah. Will the right wing of the House GOP get their demands, Sarah? If not, does that mean Speaker Johnson may, like McCarthy, lose his speakership? Oh, I think, like the head of lettuce, it's only a matter of time, right? <laughs> 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 Sorry, some some people will get that joke. Uh, okay, so... No, I mean, I sort of feel like this is an episode of Groundhog Day because he's going out out there and saying that we need a deal on the border and we've already negotiated a deal on the border. (laughs) And the package, which was negotiated by both parties, uh, was written together by the parties, right, leaders of the party. Um, It included, uh, you know, I'm going to say 80% of what the Republicans want with respect to the border. So it was a really, a really good deal and it was rejected. And so I, I don't, you know, the D- Democrats aren't going to give a better deal than giving the Republicans 80% of what they want. So I, I, yeah, I agree. This this is going nowhere if the position is we have to, you know, get everything we want on the border or we're, we're not going to negotiate. If I could add one Sarah more Day- thing, Ben. Absolutely. Real fast. Right. Because the because the other piece to this is the person who's not in the room, which is which is Donald Trump. Right. Part of the reason why the, the, the deal that Sarah talked about got scuttled was because Trump said, oh, no, we can't pass that in an election year because it'll help Biden. Right. So Johnson has to fear that as well. So he has to sort of, you know, worry about what bombs former President Trump is just going to drop into the negotiations at the last minute, which could you know break any deal that they end up making. Mm hmm. Let's get your views on this uh, recent Alabama court ruling uh, that uh, uh, the decision that embryos created through in vitro fertilization 
uh, should be legally treated as children. Uh, and in the immediate aftermath of that ruling, uh, multiple clinics in that state, including the state's largest health system, pausing IVF operations for fear of legal repercussions. And then we see uh, reactions, interestingly, from Republicans, some racing to distance themselves from this uh, uh, ruling the Senate Republican campaign arm sending a memo to its candidates urging them to quote clearly and concisely reject efforts by the government to restrict uh, in vitro fertilization and uh, you know from our own congressional delegation we have uh, U.S. Representative Marionette Miller Meek says she's been supportive of in vitro fertilization even as she cautioned about the ethical questions that IVF poses. Representative Ashley Hinson telling reporters she also supports in vitro fertilization. Uh, Sarah, what what has uh, this opened up uh, in here? We have to have the backdrop here too that that you know IVF treatments. This is uh, uh, fertilizing multiple embryos at once, but only implanting one of these uh, uh, embryos. The uh, and that. Also, that Republicans have co-sponsored legislation that declares life beginning at conception without any exclusion for IVF, if my reading is correct there, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of an odd position um, in terms of the, the Alabama Supreme Court ruling um, because... IVF is a procedure, you know, that's used uh, by women who are having difficulties getting pregnant to try to get pregnant, so increase their chances. And about 2% of women report using IVF, but 42% of people say they know someone who's tried to, uh, you know, use fertility treatments, including IVF. So, you know, this is something that a lot of people either have direct experience with or they know someone who who's um, trying to get pregnant. And so, uh, yeah, if you're promoting, uh, you know, uh, if you're a pro-life party, then you should be uh, also promoting uh, IVF as a tool for helping women to have children. And I think that's why the, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, you know, quickly stepped in with that memo saying that even in their own party, uh, you know, 85% of people they've surveyed are in support of these kind of procedures. Mm-hmm. Dave, what do you see in the reaction of Republicans, especially to this Alabama Supreme Court ruling? I mean, at, at some point, it, it's pretty clear that um, a lot of Republican legislators haven't thought through the political implications of a lot of bills they've proposed, right? The the Life at Conception Act, which uh, lots of Republicans, including Representative Miller Meeks, co-sponsored says that life life begins at conception. Um, and if that's the case, right, IVF is, um, there. there's no carve-out for IVF in that bill, right? So the bill that she's co-sponsored would be a national ban on IVF. Um, and now that the Alabama Supreme Court has sort of uh, pushed this on to the sort of national agenda where we're talking about it, they're recognizing how deeply, deeply unpopular that position is and they're running scared from it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we have the Iowa Supreme Court uh, to decide on the six-week abortion ban. Uh, this comes at the third time in three years at the Iowa Supreme Court preparing to decide whether 
uh, and how uh, the Iowa Constitution protects a right to get an abortion. Uh, Sarah, uh, how do you see, and this all stems from the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and we we talked about Mitch McConnell being instrumental in, um, you know, uh, getting a more conservative U.S. Supreme Court, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. How does that figure into this election as far as you can see at this point? Well, I think it's going to really help to mobilize women and young women voters. Uh, We've already seen that in some of the special and early elections where when abortion's been on the ballot, uh, you know, Democrats have done very well in those elections. And and so I I think uh, what, what we're seeing, one of the consequences of the Dobbs decision is that you know, states are essentially stepping in and, and enacting their own uh, legislation, and it's inconsistent, right? And and that means that women are crossing state boundaries, but some of these states are creating criminal penalties for doing that. And so, uh, so I think uh, the the Democratic Party has a real opportunity to uh, really highlight this, and and we're we are seeing that in a lot of ads that are coming out right now. So they're they're having a lot of testimonials of, of women in Texas and other states that have you know had really negative experiences because of these types of policies. And so I fully anticipate we're going to see a lot of those kinds of ads moving forward. Yeah. Will it be as effective for the Democrats as it seemed to be in 2022, the midterms, Sarah? What will yeah, that depend absolutely. on? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think when you look at every special election since then, uh, it, it's it's continued to be a good issue for Democrats. So I, I don't see why that would change in any way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we're coming up on a break, uh, we want to very quickly address uh, uh, former President Trump uh, now owing uh, New York at least $454 million. That's $355 million uh plus interest, the penalty plus an interest, interest rate alone on that is $112,000 per day. Uh, separately, he faces an $83, $83 million judgment in a federal defamation case, that one brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll. Um, he has vowed to appeal both cases um, but when we come back after a short break, uh, I want to ask uh, Dave, let me ask you quickly, Dave, what do you see as the political ramifications of this cash crunch? We have less than a minute before we go to break. We'll continue after. No, I think this is a real problem for Trump. Um, you know, today he said uh, he can only come up with $100 million and asked for special treatment from the court. Um, we'll see how that plays out. And we can talk more about that after the break, I guess. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll take a break here and you'd like to join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Dave Peterson, Lucan Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University, and Sarah Mitchell, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Back in just a moment with more of River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer on this Politics Wednesday with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Dave Peterson of Iowa State University. You can join us, 1-866-780-9100. We ran into a time crunch talking about (laughs) former President Trump's cash crunch. Uh, Dave Peterson, finish up your thought here. Uh, Trump now owing New York um, nearly half a billion dollars. Dollars when you add the penalty plus interest. Uh, there, finish your thought. I'm sorry that didn't quite oh, manage the time correctly. There, right? Not a problem, Ben. Right? I mean, it's it's clear he he admitted today he doesn't have the money. Right? That they asked to be able to post a hundred million dollar bond, um, saying that they can't do it all. Um, and you know, if the judge doesn't accept the the special treatment for the former president, um, they're going to start seizing his assets. Um, and I think that that's going to make it um, difficult for him uh, to run. I think this may funnel some money that would have gone to the campaign to paying off his uh, legal debts, and I think it's going to be a massive distraction for him. Um, you know, we we know that when things go bad for him, he can sort of lash out angrily, and I think this might be a case where he's likely to do that instead of doing more productive campaigning. Mm-hmm. Sarah, your thoughts? Well, first of all, this case is about fraud. And so Trump and his company are accused of exaggerating the value of their properties, such as their golf clubs, hotels, apartment buildings. And then they use that excessive valuation to get better loan terms from banks and from insurers. And so that's what the fraud is about. The amount that was calculated uh, is what the the attorney general was asking for $370 million in terms of the, what the value of that fraud was. Uh, the judge estimated it to be $355 million, so very close to that estimate. Um, and so, yeah, think of this as money that should have been paid to banks and insurance companies, uh, but, you know, they, they were victims of that fraud. Now, this the payment, though, will go to the state of New York, not to those specific companies. Um, I think the other interesting thing about this case is that it bans Trump from running his company for three years, as well as his two sons. They're banned for two years. Um, it He's going to be banned from getting loans from New York banks, which is difficult, right? Because a lot of banks in the U.S. have some kind of uh, headquarters in New York, at least the big banks. Uh, And then also there's a monitor that was installed at the Trump Organization, a former federal judge named Barbara Jones. And so she's like a corporate babysitter where she'll uh, oversees all of the financial operations of the Trump Organization. And that could also include if he wanted to sell buildings uh, related to the organization, then she would have to like look at that proposal and have input on it. Um, So I think if he were going to try to sell off properties, um, you know, that it takes time to do that, right? Uh, But this could also affect the other loans that he has with Deutsche Bank or other banks because he has to have a certain amount of liquidity uh, to maintain those existing loans. And so, so yeah, I think this is a huge financial mess for him. Mm -hmm. Let's circle back to Gaza in a different way, Sarah, to draw on your foreign policy expertise uh, as regarding uh, Gaza, the war there, uh, and uh, and also, Dave, uh, to weigh in with your domestic implications of what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, Israel and Hamas pouring cold water on the idea that a breakthrough is close on this 
temporary ceasefire deal for Gaza. Um, Hamas says its conditions have not been met. Uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, said popular support for Israel and the U.S. will help it fight, uh, in his words, until total victory. We have the Israeli army um, um, planning to invade Rafah, um, saying hostages and four Hamas battalions remain in that uh, city. Uh, at the same time, the World Food Program warning that famine imminent in the north of this enclave of Gaza, uh, where violence has forced um, aid deliveries to be halted. We have just unbelievable levels of child malnutrition, uh, the worst in the world that's being reported. And then we have more than you know, sort of 30,000 people killed in Gaza since this war began, according to the uh, Palestinian Health Ministry. Uh, tens of thousands injured, uh, thousands more missing, presumed dead. Uh, Sarah, your thoughts on this ceasefire deal, long sought after? Uh, will they come together to uh, at least mitigate uh, some of the, the horrid things happening there? Well, there have been a lot of negotiations uh, between the United States, Egypt, Israel, and Qatar, uh, and they they were met in Paris on Friday and then came together in Qatar on Monday uh, to continue the negotiations. Um, the, the news reporting I'm seeing today is the representatives in those negotiations are saying that Biden's optimism about getting a deal by the end of this weekend is, is not likely. Um, but they do note that they are, you know, there are, there have been a series of negotiations and they are working towards that ceasefire. And so I, I think, Will we get to a ceasefire potentially? Will we get to it within the span of the next few days? I don't think so. Um, the U.S. was also criticized, of course, for vetoing the U.N. Security Council resolution on a ceasefire uh, eight days ago. And that was the third time that the U.S. has vetoed um, such an action. So the, the permanent members of the Security Council have the ability to veto any resolution proposed by the body. Um, and so... Uh, you know, the, the, the uncommitted votes we just discussed in Michigan are in part, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, sending that signal about, you know, that this is not acceptable for the U.S. to be vetoing those resolutions. And so mm -hmm. I, I think uh, we will see the U.S. moderate on this position. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there. Moderate on the position, meaning exactly Moderate, what, meaning that, you know, right now they're clearly on the side of Israel and vetoing all uh, proposals to, to impose a ceasefire by the UN. So, but I think, uh, you know, I, I said this in an, another forum a couple of weeks ago that I predicted that the U.S. would continue to veto, and they in fact did. Uh, but, but I do think there's going to be political pressure, as Dave said, on President Biden because of, you know, there are a lot of voices within the Democratic Party that are not happy with U.S. foreign policy uh, with respect to the Gaza situation. So that's why I'm saying I, yeah. I do think there will be some kind of moderation by the United States. Let's go to a caller. Paul is with us in Ames. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? I just wanted to point out for the people who voted uncommitted in Michigan yesterday and the folks who were upset about uh, Biden uh, we have to remember that we're supporting Israel generally and always have been because of the fact that they're the only democracy in the Middle East. And secondly, 
it's wrong to blame Biden because Israel, after all, is a sovereign state, and he can only influence or exert pressure to mitigate their policies in Gaza. And he just can't dictate them. So it's wrong to blame Biden for this. Thanks for that input, uh, Paul in Ames. Sarah, how much influence does the U.S., does the Biden administration have here? Well, I mean, I agree that Israel is a sovereign state and they will make their own foreign policy decisions uh, with respect to this situation. But the U.S. has a lot of leverage because uh, the U.S. provides a lot of um, you know, military, economic and other aid to Israel. Um, and so there, there can be a lot of leverage and influence by the United States uh, in this situation. Um, there are, you know, Lebanon has been... A, a historically democratic uh, country as well. So there, there are other, uh, they're not the only democracy in the Middle East, uh, but, but yeah, I get the point. Yeah. Um, Dave, finish up here with any, any further thoughts you have about the domestic implications of this war in Gaza. Um, no, I think, I think we've talked about it. The only other thing I'll add is, um, you know, we have to recognize that what Biden is doing publicly may not be what he's doing privately. Right. I mean, you know, it, it appears as if he's unequivocally supporting Israel, um, but we don't know what he's trying to do and what he's saying and, and what his administration is saying to Netanyahu. Um, and so, you know, it's obviously not working, um, but, you know, believing that the public statements they make are a sincere reflection of their strategic choices they're making in private, I think, is a little naive. Hmm. Okay. Let's finish up uh, also in, in foreign policy. Um, on Monday, we had Hungary's parliament voting in favor of Sweden's long-delayed bid to join NATO. Uh, this is uh, clearing the final obstacle to a historic expansion of this military alliance. Sweden set to become NATO's 32nd member, possibly within a, a few days. And this is all, of course, traced back to the reaction that began with Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine in 2022. We saw Finland uh, join NATO very quickly uh, last uh, year. And and again, Sarah, for the foreign policy, and and Dave, with your thoughts for uh, other... uh, Well, we have domestic uh, politics in this as well. We have um, isolationist tendencies uh, in the new Republican Party or part of it. Sarah, your thoughts on this expansion uh, that includes now two Nordic countries, massive countries there. Well, uh, you know, some political scientists have staked out the position that the expansion of NATO is one of the motivations for uh, Putin to engage in this invasion. Of course, that's also been hotly contested and argued against by other political scientists. Um, but essentially, uh, whether you which side you take doesn't matter because the reality is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has in fact uh, solidified uh, support for NATO. It's now brought two new members, Finland and Sweden, into the alliance. Uh, we've now seen most of the European members uh, meeting their two percent of of GDP uh, comprising military spending, and so they're they're meeting the the military spending requirements under NATO. Um, so yeah, there's nothing like an invasion to get countries to care more about their security and defense spending. Um, uh, so some other things that are interesting here on the two-year anniversary of the invasion, I think, first of all, uh, 
Russia is, you know, really sort of strengthened its military capabilities, not only by ramping up its own domestic production of weapons like tanks, rocket launchers, artillery and missiles, but it's also getting us military aid from other countries. So it was getting artillery shells from North Korea. It's been getting drones from Iran. Uh, It's been getting, uh, you know, microchips and other parts for the more technological weapon systems from China. So essentially that military aid and its own production has kept Russia very strong and why it's making some gains on the ground in recent weeks. Also, they've essentially evaded the financial pains caused by the EU and U.S. sanctions because India, China, and Turkey have significantly increased oil purchases uh, in that same period of time as those sanctions. And so, uh, you know, Turkey essentially saved $2 billion, for example, by buying cheaper oil from Russia. And so that's made it difficult for the sanctions to have an effect on Russia. Um And I think, you know, this is just, again, to reiterate, one of the most deadly wars we've seen in terms of interstate wars in a really long time. So probably at least 70,000 battle deaths on both both sides combined. Um, So I really hope there's a solution to this conflict, but I don't see it happening uh, in the near future. Dave, your reflections on this two-year anniversary of the latest uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have to say it that way, I think, because we remember Russia took over Crimea, that peninsula, uh, part of Ukraine in 2014. Um, you know, I think it's, it's um, you know, sort of thinking about it in terms of domestic politics, the mm-hmm. inability to, to get an aid package together, despite the fact that it is popular, despite the fact that, um, you know, it would get... If allowed to come to a vote, it would get a majority vote probably in both the House and the Senate. Um, and it's just that the Republican leadership uh, in the House, like we talked about, is sort of blocking it. Um, they won't let it come to a vote because they know they'll lose. Um, and and so uh, it, it's sort of striking that, you know, we're not fulfilling our, our role as the, you know, as, as the leader of the, of the free world and as the le- um, and, and we're doing so for. Um, again, some some pretty uh, simple sort of legislative organizational problems. Yeah. Sarah, help us understand a little bit of what the European and how they view uh, what is going on here in our politics uh, and the inability uh, to um, approve further aid uh, for U- Ukraine here. Um, they, uh, you, it's spurring them to... to um, spend more on the military uh, and reevaluating this traditional alliance uh, with North America, with the U.S.? Well, I mean, NATO is one of the most successful alliances, maybe the most successful military alliance of all time. Uh, Its members have one of the closest voting blocks in the United Nations General Assembly. So not only does it prevent member states from being attacked from the outside, it also promotes cooperation in the UN more generally. Um, And so, uh, you know, if NATO credibility, right, were to be threatened by US pulling back support, or even more so, right, Trump tried to pull out of NATO and was essentially stopped from doing that. Uh, But this is why in Congress, we've, we've seen some bills to try to prevent the US president just from initiating that 
that withdrawal from NATO because it, it would have huge consequences. We have integrated military command within NATO. We share military intelligence within NATO. Um, so a lot of our military uh, you know, strategy and, and our broader positioning in the global uh, you know, strategic landscape is connected to our ties through NATO. And so, uh, you know, pulling out of it would, would have serious, uh, serious, would be a big problem for, uh, for our military. It's why members of our military uh, in the Trump administration were very, you know, pushing back very hard against them. Okay, we come to the end of this Politics Wednesday. Sarah Mitchell, uh, correction on your title, professor and collegiate scholar at the University of Iowa. Uh, and uh, Dave Peterson, Lucan professor of political science at Iowa State University. Dave and Sarah, thank you for your insights this hour. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ben. Tomorrow on this program, with this week's whiplash weather patterns, uh, we'll listen back to a discussion from late last year with scientists involved with the latest assessment of Iowa's climate, how harnessing solar energy not only mitigates climate change, but boosts our state's economy. That tomorrow. And right now we're in a quiet drive um, portion of our spring membership drive. We hope you remember that and go to IPR.org. Today's program produced by Danny Gear with help from Samantha McIntosh, Caitlin Troutman, and Sean McLean. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.